And the Oscar goes to... Oh, thank you so much. This might be the one time I'm speechless. This is not a joke. Moonlight is one best picture. Could you double check the envelope? And I can't deny the fact that you like me. Thank you, life. Thank you, love. You guys are just standing up because you feel bad that I fell, and that's really embarrassing, but thank you. This is nuts. It's a tie. I'm the king of the world. And the Oscar goes and to... And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... Goes to. My only object is here is to try and get out of the What shall I go? What shall I do? He's looking at you, kid. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a... Could have been a contender. Fasten your... I could have been somebody. They can only kill me with a golden bullet. What have I done? Call me Mr. Tibbs. I'm gonna make him an offer, Captain. The census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fruit. For Frodo. Nice kid. Don't laugh! Can't stop what's coming. This ain't reality TV! You mock Twitter. It's time, Robbie. It's fast. Welcome to the next Best Picture podcast. Oscar goes to. Okay, Coda. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 321 of the Next Best Picture podcast. I'm your host, Matt Neglia, and time of recording is 11.13 a.m. on November 27th, 2022. Here to join me today for this episode, I have Josh Parham. Hello, hello. And Cody Derricks. Hiya. Hello. So, uh, did the two of you have a nice Thanksgiving weekend? Yeah. <laughs> a hesitance. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think the most important thing to discuss here is, uh, did we catch up with some movies, which we'll get to in a little bit here. So, we're going to talk about the predicted winners this week for the Gotham Awards, which are happening tomorrow night. And then we're also going to be discussing the nominations from the Spirit Awards, along with the trailer for Elemental. We'll go over the polls, answer some questions. So let's get to it. What did everyone catch up with this week over this holiday weekend? Cody Derricks, we'll start off with you. So since the last time I was on, I got to review a few movies for the site, uh, one of which was the latest Disney Plus nostalgia cash grab, Disenchanted, which um, aptly named, I'll say. I really think Amy Adams was trying her very best, and I'd like to see her having fun, which is the kind of thing you say for your, like, divorced stepmom, I know, but I really do feel that way. (laughs) And I think something about the concept of the movie allowed her to have some fun in a way that brings both the sunny character from Enchanted and the kind of more pained, damaged characters that she's played since into one single character. So... I thought she was a standout. The movie on the whole, I found very cynical and depressing in that kind of corporate based IP filmmaking way that is really just very antithetical to what I want to see in art. Um, I also checked out this nice documentary called Bad Axe, which the log line made me feel very nervous in terms of revisiting a uh, an era I really didn't want to revisit because this is about a family restaurant Uh, in 2020 in Michigan, trying to make it by, and the parents are, or rather the father figure is a Cambodian refugee, and just incorporating all the different struggles of 2020 uh, into one single restaurant, essentially, and we watch what happens to them across one painful, important year, and I found it really illuminating, and I think this might stand to be one of the more important time capsules of that year. I can really see people returning to this one as time goes on. It's one of those films that really, in its specificity, becomes kind of paradoxically universal. The more individualized it gets, it somehow opens up to feel like a portrait of a time that a you know entire <laughs> the human race went through. Um, so definitely check that one out if you can. 
And then yesterday I had the pleasure to see Glass Onion in a very full theater here in Chicago. And wow, I know this is only going to be in theaters for another few days when this episode comes out. But if you can find a way to see this in theaters, it maximizes the experience so much. I had a fantastic time with this movie. <laughs> the first Knives Out is a favorite of mine, obviously. Um but I was, I have had to warm up to it over time. The first time I saw it, I remember being very impressed, but not blown away. And every time I've watched it since, it's grown on me more and more. And this one, from the first time watching it, I'm in love. I loved this movie so much. I thought the ensemble was incredible. I thought Janelle Monet is deserving of the Oscar buzz she's getting. I thought the screenplay was just as smart as the first one. And I had a really great time seeing it. And uh, I look forward to seeing it again on Netflix in about a month. Yeah, I definitely agree. I, I too caught up with uh, Glass Onion for a second time with a crowd uh, this past week. And I echo everything that you said here, Cody. It's definitely a lot of fun to watch with a group of people. I'm hoping that when people watch it on Netflix, they can do a similar thing, even if it's a small group of three, four people, whatever it is. It's a blast to watch with others. And if you like the first film, I imagine you'll probably like this one uh, just as much, maybe even a little bit more. So that's really, really exciting. And it's doing pretty well at the box office, considering that it released in only 600 theaters, uh, which I don't know. Netflix maybe should have uh, gone a little bit wider and they could have gotten even more money out of it if they wanted to. Right. I was I'm, I'm very interested to see the final box office returns at the end of the weekend or rather at the end of its entire run, because I do wonder if it might make Netflix evaluate some of their models. I doubt it because it's very much against their entire business practice, but something that uh, something they should probably consider. All right. Josh Parham, we are up to you. So I did use this week to catch up on some stuff um, that I hadn't seen previously. Uh, I did get out to the theater to see Strange World, the new Disney animated movie, and it is uh, pretty painfully mediocre, I have to say. Um, Like, it was just so devoid of any kind of actual creativity i felt it was just felt so standard even though i i will say that this is one of the few occasions where i do think maybe dizzy should actually get some credit for their seventh first gay character that uh we mocked that a lot but i actually do think it was used pretty well within the story for this one the problem is just that the story around that element is just so mundane and i just really was not a fan of this movie at all. I was bored to tears while I was watching it. So it's not shocking to me that too many other people haven't been seeing it either because it wasn't a particularly good movie to me. Uh, I also saw another animated feature that's in contention this year, which is My Father's Dragon, the new Cartoon Saloon film. And I did enjoy that one. I didn't love it quite as much as some of their other movies. You know, it's not as good as Wolf Walkers, but it was like lovely and, and sweet. Uh, kind of a movie, very simple, much more simple in its storytelling. And I enjoyed it for what it was. It wasn't amazing, but it, you know, if you're scrolling through Netflix and looking for a light animated movie, that that's one that I would recommend people check out. Uh, something else that I caught up with was funny game or sorry, funny pages. The, <laughs> uh, yeah, not funny games, different movie. Uh, funny pages was a movie that I had heard about earlier this year and had finally gotten a screener for it. So wanted to check it out. And, that was one that very much reminded me of those sort of offbeat indie movies we saw like in the early to mid 2000s. Very much has a feel to that. Um, I didn't love it. The, man, the characters are just so abrasive in this movie. I was really having a hard time kind of connecting with them. But 
I did recognize the kind of scrappy nature to it, and I was endeared a little bit. It's not a great movie, and the one that I will not be thinking about that much afterwards, for sure, but I, I did enjoy it for what it was attempting to do at at, um, at points. Okay. And then the last thing that I saw was I finally caught up with Bones and All. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I got to say, I think the writing is maybe the thing that I had the most issue with I, I did like some of it for long stretches, but then it also felt like the structure of the narrative kind of slowed down a bit and there was some kind of awkward lines here and there. But I was pulled in by the overall atmosphere of this movie and these performances. I actually think this movie has some pretty excellent cinematography. I was really blown away by that. I wasn't expecting this movie to look as good as it did. So I, I liked it. I wouldn't say I loved it, but very interesting movie for sure. Yeah, it's funny you say that about the writing, because the writing is actually maybe my favorite part of the movie, actually. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I guess I take a listen to our uh, podcast review of it. I thought we had a really uh, good conversation about the themes, the characters, uh, Luca Guadagnino's aesthetic for it all. It's a movie that I, I've seen twice now, and every time I revisit it, I find a little bit more to appreciate each time, which I think all of his films have a quality of to them. So I'm excited to see, obviously, where he, Taylor Russell, a bunch of them all go next from here. But Taylor Russell especially, I mean, with this in Waves, my God, what an incredible talent. Oh, yeah, she owns the movie completely, and the best thing about it, for sure. All right, so for myself, I did a lot of rewatches this week. Uh, nothing really new. Um, I rewatched after sun which i did like a bit more on uh, a second viewing uh i'm still not as blown away by it as some other people are but i was in a better headspace this time when i watched it uh compared to the first time i was very stressed at the uh telluride film festival and watching it a second time now in a little bit more of a relaxed comfortable setting uh definitely made the experience a bit better overall very good movie very happy with uh, how it's been performing so far in these early precursors, and we'll get to that a little bit more in a little bit here. Um, I also uh, rewatched The Banshees of Inishirin, uh showed that to my folks who, uh, you know, every year during the holidays, I showed them the big Oscar contenders, uh, given that they're both 60 years old. They've seen their fair share of movies, and so I always find getting their insight into how some of these films play uh, to be pretty valuable sometimes. Uh, like, case in point, they did not like Power of the Dog last year. They loved Coda. Uh, another example of this was they loved Moonlight in 2016, uh, which was something that I wasn't quite expecting, but they also loved La La Land, so that made things uh, equally as tough uh, to try and figure out. But their taste does tend to align with what ultimately ends up happening uh, with the Academy, at least over the last couple of years. There hasn't been a year where they kind of went against the grain, uh, similar situation with things like Green Book and Roma. Obviously, they liked Green Book. They did not like Roma. So anyway, Banshees of Inishirin, rewatched it, love it. And then we uh, we watched everything everywhere all at once. Uh, as you guys know, my favorite film of the year. <laughs> and I love that movie uh, with all my heart. Uh, unfortunately, I cannot say the same for them. <laughs> uh, so that was a little disappointing, to say the least. Uh, but at the same time, it's valuable information because the next day I showed them the Fablemans and they loved it. 
Oh, okay. I didn't know about that with the Fablemans. I know you said you were going to show them, but I didn't hear a response. So they liked it a lot. Huh? Yes, we were supposed to watch women talking afterwards, but it was a little too late. And I have to head back home uh, today. So hopefully over the uh, Christmas holiday, uh, we'll get to that, she said, and a few others as well. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to, like I said, like, by that point, hopefully showing them all the main contenders. But so far, the big takeaways uh, right now is they love Top Gun Maverick, which I'm not surprised by that at all. I mean, that's appropriate. <laughs> right, right. My mom liked uh, Banshees of Inisherin. My dad was indifferent towards it. Uh, my mom also liked Everything Everywhere All at Once, and my dad really did not like that. Um, and they both love Fablemans. So, yeah, I mean, there's still some other things I got to show them. Like, uh, we'll probably try to do Elvis at some point. Yeah, Elvis is one I'm all, that's another one I am very interested in because uh, I am toying with some stuff with Elvis right now in my predictions. Understandably so. I think that film plays to a broad audience. I mean, the box office uh, results for it say just as much. But uh, there are some other like movies, like I said, like she said, The Whale uh, and a few others where regardless of like box office performance, I just want to see like how it plays, you know, like I feel like with us, because we appreciate so many different genres and so many different elements of film, uh, we tend to have a, a greater appreciation where, you know, sometimes with a casual movie watcher, you know, you can kind of just read into it a little bit more and gain a better understanding of how that will play with then the larger Academy voting uh, block of 10,000 people. So very valuable information overall. Uh, we'll see where it goes from here. And at the end of the day, too, like I'm going to continue talking to every voter I speak with and getting their individual perspectives here and there. Uh, and we'll see where the season evolves as we continue moving forward. I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. All right, so what I want to do first is I would actually like to go over the Independent Spirit Award nominations. Last week, we uh, talked about some films that we thought might show up, and there were some expected uh, notices here for movies like Everything Everywhere All Once, Tar, Women Talking, uh, After Sun, Bones and All getting to Best Feature, along with Our Father the Devil, though, was, uh, I mean, like, Bones and All, I'm not necessarily surprised, but Our Father the Devil, I haven't seen this one. Have, have either of you? I have not, and I feel like every year there's always one movie that makes it into the best feature lineup from the yeah. spirits, and we're like, oh, I have never heard of that movie. <laughs> yep, yeah. Women Talking, getting the Robert Altman Award for Best Ensemble, uh, which I think if they had done it with any other movie, it would have been kind of ridiculous. Uh, yeah, so very, very predictable that they would get that award, but also incredibly deserved. Absolutely. I mean, I, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I don't think I will see a better ensemble uh, this year at all. And all I have left to watch really is 
Avatar The Way of Water. So I'm pretty sure Women Talking should get every single ensemble award throughout the entire year, including SAG. Yeah. Uh, best first feature, we have After Sun, Emily and the Criminal, The Inspection, Marina, and Palm Trees and Power Lines. Now, that's a film we haven't heard about since Sundance. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it has a distribution, but I was very happy to see it pop up here in a couple of different categories. They seem to really like that movie. Mm hmm. Yeah. A lot more than I did. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I've also noticed this in these very early independent precursors. Emily, the criminal is getting some, you know, surprising nominations here and there from a movie I didn't hear much about. Um, Aubrey Plaza especially is really getting some, you know, again, these are smaller, earlier nominations, but still something. Do you think there's a world where Aubrey Plaza could ride a wave of critical adoration to maybe like a Critics' Choice nomination or something like that? I think with the category as crowded as it is, it's very likely no, but I do think she's definitely in, you know, the the soup of 20 to 25 names or so. And that's like the beautiful thing about something like the Gotham Awards, the Spirit Awards, is it does give a chance to shine a spotlight on these smaller movies uh, with great performances, great writing, great direction that unfortunately uh, the masses with these larger voting bodies do tend to overlook. So I'm always glad when they, whenever they get their moment in the sun here. Speaking of which, the John Cassavetes Award, which is for Best Feature Made for Under a Million Dollars, we have The African Desperate, A Love Song, The Cathedral, Holy Emmy, and Something in the Dirt. I've only I'm seen so a glad love song. that A Love Song is getting these this these early awards. Like I said, these earlier independent, smaller awards. I loved that movie at Sundance. It was the best thing I saw at Sundance this year, and I really just think people need to check it out. Oh, so good. And Dale Dickey, just an amazing performance. Mm-hmm. Best Director, we have Todd Field for Tar, Koganada After Yang, Daniel Kwan, Daniel Scheinhart for Everything Everywhere All at Once, Sarah Polly for Women Talking, and Helena Rain for Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Love that mention for Helena Rain. And After Yang, too. Really like the, that uh, Koganada got in for that. Absolutely. Great lineup overall there. Uh, best Screenplay. Lena Dunham showing up again with Catherine called Birdie after receiving a Gotham Award nomination. That could be a contender that we don't necessarily see coming that might have some staying power with some other groups this award season, so we'll keep an eye out for that one. Todd Field for Tar, Koganada for After Yang, The Daniels for Everything Everywhere All at Once, and Sarah Polly for Women Talking. So almost lining up with Best Director. Yep, and hard to complain. But yeah, the, that Lena Dunham nomination, it does start to make me wonder because she has shown up more than I was anticipating. Yeah, and I also think, too, it's a little wild considering how well it did in other uh, categories no after sun in director screenplay or feature yeah how did after sun qualify did they change the rules or is there american money in this i'm not 100 percent sure i'm pretty sure there's got to be american money in this i mean i would guess because i thought that was not going to qualify for the spirits because it's supposed to be american productions yeah well let's keep moving here we have best first screenplay fire island Palm Trees and Power Lines, Emergency, Bodies, 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 and Emily the Criminal. Oh, that Fire Island nomination it makes me the happiest. Mm-hmm. Me too. I, I loved that movie. Best Lead Performance. We've got 10 nominees here. Kate Blanchett and Tar, Dale Dickey, A Love Song, Mia Goth and Pearl, Regina Hall, Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, Paul Mescal, After Sun, Aubrey Plaza, Emily the Criminal, Jeremy Pope, The Inspection, Andrea Riseborough for Two Leslie, Taylor Russell, Bones and All, and Michelle Yeoh for Everything Everywhere All at Once. Yeah, gosh. 
I know. <laughs> uh, still my favorite lead actress performance of the year. Yeah, that made me very happy. I love seeing the recognition for Dale Dickey in a love song. I, I really just love in general, like there's just so many great performances here. And, you know, so many also left off too. Like I was hoping for Tanduay Newton to show up for uh, God's Country. Uh, Brendan Fraser for The Whale and uh, Daniel Deadweiler uh, for Till, both curiously missing when they both made the Gotham Awards. Yeah, the uh, the Whale is, I think, the more interesting story here that it didn't get a single nomination. Yeah. Although I can't say I'm that surprised because when these are being voted on by small uh, voting juries, if all of them did not like The Whale, then it kind of makes a little sense. I guess so. But if we're speaking to Brendan Fraser's Oscar chances, I would have to do some research. But I wonder if it has been a while since a qualifying performance was snubbed at the Indie Spirits and then still won the Oscar. Mm, yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll have to look into that. Best Supporting Performance. Once again, 10 nominees here. We have Jamie Lee Curtis for Everything Everywhere All at Once. Brian Tyree Henry for Causeway. Nina Haas for Tar. Brian D'Arcy James for The Cathedral. Kihei Kwan for Everything Everywhere All at Once, Travante Rhodes for Bruiser, Theo Rossi, Emily the Criminal, Mark Rylance, Bones and All, Jonathan Tucker, Palm Trees and Power Lines, and Gabrielle Union for The Inspection. More buzz for Jamie Lee Curtis and Everything Everywhere All at Once. You know, I'm, I'm kind of surprised because if I had to pick between the two of them one female supporting performance to nominate for this award, I would probably lean towards Stephanie Hsu. I think it's the showier performance, but I keep hearing buzz and... Uh, you know, recognition for Jamie Lee Curtis. So maybe this this really could happen. I think it just comes down to something that we've seen play out before, which is Stephanie Sue is still relatively new on the circuit. Jamie Lee Curtis has been around for decades and has never gotten any kind of proper awards recognition. I mean, some here or there. She got that Golden Globe. What was it for? True Lies? Yeah. Yes. Which yeah. She yeah. should have won the Oscar for True Lies. That's my Especially opinion. Especially that year. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I'm I'm glad to see that for a movie that she cares about and has made it publicly known that she wants this recognition. I mean, like, I'm happy for her. At the same time, I, I do hate that it's coming at the expense of Stephanie Sue in this regard. And my my hope and prayer would be that everyone can find room for both. I mean, yeah. Uh, but, you know, on a personal level, I think Stephanie Sue gives the better performance and that's the one I would also pick too, Cody. Right. I love Jamie Lee Curtis in this movie in, in general, obviously. <laughs> I'm just kind of surprised that of all places, the Indie Spirits went for her over Stephanie Sue because I don't really think the Indie Spirits are in the game of, you know, recognizing overdue performances. Again, they snubbed Brendan Fraser, so it doesn't seem like it's something on their agenda. But you know what, though? Stephanie Sue did show up in the next category for Best Breakthrough Performance. We have Frankie Corio for After Sun. Gracia Filipovich for Marina, Stephanie Sue for Everything Everywhere All at Once, Lily McKierney for Palm Trees and Power Lines, and Daniel Zogardi for Funny Pages. Now, here's my question. Does being in this category preclude them from being nominated in the general categories? Because then that might... Considering... I, I, I don't know, but I, I... Yeah. That was something that did cross my mind now. It's a new category. Because, yeah, all these performances are not listed in the other two categories. That is a good question. I would kind of feel like it's i mean because we know that they have similar rules with the the robert altman award not being nominated in the individual categories so that that would make sense okay for best cinematography we have tar marina after sun pearl and neptune frost and that neptune frost nomination is really nice i love seeing the recognition for pearl here (laughs) yeah uh best editing we have the cathedral 
Marcel Vachel with shoes on, After Sun, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and Tar. I love the nomination for Marcel here because just looking at it, you don't think of that as, as an ending showcase. But when you consider stop motion and incorporating it into the real world, you really do have to think there's a lot of work put into the edit there. Mm-hmm. And it's done well. Oh, absolutely. I, I know that the next time I watch that movie, I am specifically going to keep my eye out for the editing because that was a pure surprise of a nomination. But it goes to show you, too, like you're saying, Cody, how thoughtful uh, the juries are when they're considering these uh, awards here. Now, has anybody seen The Cathedral? I did. OK, did you like it? No, it was not for me. OK, well, because that's another one that seems like it's showing up a little bit more than I expected to. So. I don't know if it's something to keep an eye out on or if this is just sort of, you know, our indie precursor thing. I think it's an indie precursor thing, truly. Best documentary, All That Breathes, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, A House Made of Splinters, Midwives, and Ridesville, USA. Really, really love seeing the Midwives inclusion. I thought that was one of the better documentaries I saw back at Sundance. And I don't think it has U.S. distribution. Same thing with A House Made of Splinters. But A House Made of Splinters has actually been showing up quietly amongst a couple of the documentary uh, precursors. But something tells me that because of um, the lack of distribution, that would be one that probably wouldn't qualify until next year, uh, which is interesting because it's making it in at all these other precursors. So if it does qualify for next year, it's going to have to work just twice as hard to build up momentum without getting these uh, key nominations. Ridesville USA was a really special little archival documentary I saw at Sundance. I'm glad to see you getting some recognition here. People should really check that one out. For best international film, we have Corsage, Joyland, Lenore Will Never Die, Return to Seoul, and St. Omer. I wonder if the uh, recent news about Joyland helped it during the nomination phase. I think that's totally possible. Um, I'm actually a little bit more... Surprised to not see Decision to Leave here. Um, also, too, you would think that they would try to find a place to give something to Banshees of Inishirin like the Gotham Awards did. But I have to look at the rules and the differences to understand if uh, the fact that that's in English uh, prohibited it from being here, even though the financing is international. I mean, they've nominated English language movies before. Like, that's what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. And this was a while ago, so I don't know if the rules would change, but I remember like the King's Speech won this award. Right, right. Spirit, exactly. So. Mm-hmm. so, yeah, I was a little surprised by that. Uh, Producers Award is going to Liz Cardenas, Tori Lenowski, and David Grove Churchill Viste. Uh, Someone to Watch Award is going to Adama Ebo for Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul. Nikyatu Jisu for, for Nanny, and Araceli Lemos for Holy Emmy. And a True and Fiction Award is being presented to Isabel Castro for Miha, Reed Davenport for I Didn't See You There, and Rebecca Hunt for Beba. And that's it. Those are our nominations for the Independent Spirit Awards this year. Yeah, and as always, the thing that I look at with the Spirit Awards, especially when it comes to predicting the winners, is that you always sort of have to think about what the race is going to look like when they do get to the winners, because I think that's usually how we get to those results. So whatever you think the race is now, like that's not really going to be the spirit award winners. You kind of have to think of the future of where you imagine things in the race are going to shift by that point. I mean, some of these categories I can confidently say, I think I know what's winning. Some others are really tough. Yeah. And 
with only two acting categories this year with 10 nominees, I, I wonder if that will make predicting it even more difficult. Remind me again, though, because I keep getting this confused with the Gotham Awards. Are they doing two winners at the Spirit Awards for each category? I have not heard that. No, last I don't believe so. Okay, I don't know where I heard that. Maybe it was the Los Angeles film critics when they announced it. I might be wrong, though, but I, I don't think so. Okay, I do remember one group saying it. I just couldn't remember specifically which one. I, I have a feeling it was it was uh, Los Angeles. Either way, though, it's going to be a really, really heated race, I think, uh, in a lot of these categories. It's going to be really interesting to see uh, which films ultimately end up doing the best here. And like you said, Josh, just because it's one way now doesn't mean that the tide can't turn. Yeah, especially with a lot of film Twitter people voting on it because anybody can vote as long as you just pay. Mm -hmm. All right, well, let's predict uh, what's going to win at the Gotham Awards tomorrow evening. So this is like the New York equivalent of the Spirit Awards. Bookending the season here, uh, the Gotham Awards usually start us off. The Spirit Awards usually close us off. Let's start off with breakthrough nonfiction series. We have the Andy Warhol Diaries, The Last Movie Stars, Mind Over Murder, The Rehearsal, and We Need to Talk About Cosby. I'm feeling a win for We Need to Talk About Cosby, but The Rehearsal, that was a very buzzed about show. I, I could see that possibly pulling off a win here, too. I would yeah. really hope so. I famously am somebody who's very bad at watching TV, and even I got time to <laughs> catch the rehearsal and loved it. I mean, the last movie, Stars 2, y you have Martin Scorsese here, Ethan Hawke, both of them being possibly in the area to give a speech. Uh, so that's maybe possible. It it's a tough category. Yeah, I was leaning towards the rehearsal just because, critically speaking, it was just so revered it seemed like it, it felt to me like everybody was talking about it and the circles that were enthusiastic the most about it kind of just feel like a gotham crowd all right let's see here we have outstanding performance in a new series Bilal Beg for sort of io adabiri for the bear janelle james abbott elementary minha kim for pachinko matilda lawler for station 11 Britt lauer for severance melanie linsky for yellow jackets Zahn McLaren for Dark Winds, Sue Ann Plen for As We See It, and Ben Wishaw for This Is Going to Hurt. And this is going to hurt Josh Parham when Ben Wishaw does not win this category. <laughs> <laughs> he does have three nominations from them, so I, that must be pointed out that they did like his work a lot this year. <laughs> My gut tells me Melanie Linsky. Yeah. But then there's another part of me that wonders, well, she already won a couple of other things. The Emmy race for that is over. Do they want to give her a win as a way to say, hey, sorry, you didn't get the Emmy, but here's our way of recognizing you? Or do you think they would move on to somebody else? I mean, that was my thought. And that's a very well-liked performance. And I, I feel like she is going to win. But I, like Cody, I do not watch that much television. So I don't have a firm grasp on how strong these contenders really are. But just at first glance, I would say probably Melanie Linsky. I would actually say the runner-up is Ayu uh, Aderby for The Bear. Heard great things about it, too. Oh, you should watch that show, Josh. Yeah, I know. I know. It's, I'm very Yeah, Josh, we of all people should watch that show. <laughs> I know. I know. And it would surprise nobody that, like, the only show on this list I did watch was This Is Going To Hurt. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Cody, what about you? Melanie Linsky? Melanie Linsky was my thought. Yeah, it's definitely the most buzzed about performance on this list pretty easily. And it's not like she's even the biggest name, but definitely is the performance that leaps out the most in terms of recognition and buzz and attention. 
All right, for breakthrough series, we have Pachinko, Severance, Station Eleven, This Is Going to Hurt, and Yellow Jackets. I think this is going to Pachinko. Interesting. I was thinking Severance. And I was actually thinking Station Eleven. Uh (laughs) I love it. Yes. (laughs) I, I feel like Pachinko, this is just a great opportunity to reward a show that hasn't been getting notices much anywhere else. And... This was also, like we were saying before about the rehearsal, so critically acclaimed. I just have a I have a sneaking feeling with this one. Severance, though, like it, it had its it had its high points. It did really well. Uh, the Emmys, unfortunately, didn't recognize it as much as like some people thought they would. Station Eleven, I would agree, though, is probably the dark horse uh, one that I would watch out for. So people loved Station Eleven. Yeah. All right. Breakthrough series in a short format. We have Abbott Elementary, As We See It, Mo, Rap Shit, and Somebody Somewhere. Abbott. I mean, pretty, pretty easily, unless people are trying to, you know, go against the curve or something. Yeah. Which they could. Right. It's like, oh, this keeps winning and it's been winning everywhere. We want to recognize like something different for a change. That's the only mentality that I could see bringing a win to something else other than Abbott. Yeah. I mean, I think of all of the their television categories, Abbott winning this feels the most secure, but it is a small group. You never know what they might think about in the moment, but it does sort of seem pretty obvious that Abbott would win this. For Breakthrough Performer, we have Anna Cobb for We're All Going to the World's Fair, Frankie Corio for After Sun, Anna Diop for Nanny, Gracia Filipovich for Marina, and Kali Reese for Catch the Fair One. Mm, I kind of feel like this is either Diop or Corio. I agree, exactly, and I think yep. that they might go another route, and I because I, I think it's easy to say After Sun, mm-hmm. but I'm going to go with Anna Diop. I think I am too. Interesting. I can see going to either of them. I think I'm leaning towards Frankie Corio. Just if nothing else from it has the most buzz of all these films. But yeah, I've heard good things about Andy Up, So definitely could happen. Not to mention, too, the publicity team behind Nanny has been screening the hell out of that movie for weeks. Multiple screenings. I'm telling you, it's nonstop. So I feel like if it's going to pay off anywhere, it could pay off here to start. And who knows where it could go critically with the uh, precursors in the weeks to come. Yeah, I I feel like there is definitely passion for that movie and her performance. And as you said, the amount of times they're trying to get that movie out in front of people, I think you can make the difference here. For outstanding supporting performance, we have Jesse Buckley for Women Talking, Raul Castillo for The Inspection, Hong Chow for The Whale, Brian Tyree Henry for Causeway, Nina Haas for Tar, Noemi Merlant for Tar, Kihi Kwan for Everything Everywhere All at Once, Mark Rylance, Bones and All, Gabrielle Union, The Inspection, and Ben Wishaw for Women Talking. Well, you know, I just have to say that Mark Rylance performance in Bones and All is just insane. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> I love seeing it get recognized, though. I know Dan Baer was also a really big fan of it. I mean, I think all of us, for the most part, maybe other than Tom, I know I remember Tom didn't have the best reaction to it at Venice. But I think he's warmed up to it like since then, maybe. I could be wrong. I think a lot about Troy Kotzer's win last year at the Gotham Awards and how that was actually considered by some people to be a bit of a surprise. I think it's going to be Kihei Kwan, the runner up. I would actually go with Brian Tyree Henry for Causeway. Yeah, I would actually sort of like it if Brian Tyree Henry were to win because I don't think he's going to get that many major wins throughout this season and the Gotham's is a place where they can go off 
the kind of the the predictable path every now and then. And it would be so nice for him to get that kind of a recognition. Exactly. Yeah. I do want to say this is an amazing lineup. Like all 10. Oh, truly. Yeah. Incredible. Um, I am leaning towards K.E. Kwan, though. Yeah. And then, you know, there's also the possibility because they do have uh, performances from Women Talking nominated. I could see Jesse Buckley, too. Yeah. We might get a tie. Oh, man. That's true. I didn't even think of that. You're right. Because I think the lead category last year tied, right? Yeah. It did. It was Olivia Coleman and Frankie Faison. There's usually always one tie somewhere, so... Oh, I would love it if it was Jesse Buckley and K. Kwan or, or Byron. Oh, I would love any combination. That'd be I so mean, a tie with any of these people would be appropriate. These sure. are all fantastic performances. Yeah. Outstanding lead performance. Kate Blanchett and Tar. Daniel Deadweiler for Till. Dale Dickey, a love song. Colin Farrell after Yang. Brendan Fraser, the whale. Paul Mescal for after sun. Tandaway Newton for God's country. Aubrey Plaza, Emily, the criminal. Taylor Russell for Bones and All and Michelle Yeoh for Everything Everywhere All at Once. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, this is very difficult. So tough. Wow. <laughs> I think the easy answer is to say Kate Blanchett and Tar, but God, nothing would make me happier than to see Daniel Deadweiler or Michelle Yeoh. And then there's also the possibility of what if, you know, they want to create uh, another moment uh, for another standing ovation moment for Brendan Fraser. I don't think they think like that, which is why I'm not going to predict him. But I, I think the conventional thinking says Kate Blanchett for Tar. But God, I would love it if it was. I mean, you said before about supporting. I, I would be happy with any of these winners. I'm actually kind of leaning towards Michelle Yeoh. I think it's the kind of performance that nobody dislikes. Everybody's in love with her as a person and has been for a long time. And this organization feels really primed to enjoy that movie in general. Yeah, I sort of am leading that way too. It, although, as we said, it is very tough. I, I think there's like seven or eight people that could win and it wouldn't surprise me. Like, I feel like it's really difficult to pick a winner, but I am sort of leaning towards yo at this point but it could just easily go to Blanchett just as the kind of default but you know they they love her and that that movie and uh in general as well so i don't know it this is very tough too all right best screenplay after yang armageddon time Catherine called birdie tar women talking women talking this should be women talking yeah easily uh the bingham ray breakthrough director award charlotte wells for after sun owen klein funny pages Elegance Bratton, The Inspection, Antonetta Alamat Kusijanovic for Marina, Befte Arauo for Soft and Quiet, and Jane Schoenenbrunn for We're All Going to the World's Fair. Charlotte Wells. Uh, unless if Elegance Bratton being a uh, a New York, you know, hometown person, I mean, that that could happen, but I, I would lean toward Charlotte Wells. Yeah, the fact that After Sun is here and also in feature, I kind of feel like that is the default for that movie to win. Best international feature. We have Athena, The Banshees of Inishirin, Corsage, Decision to Leave, Happening, St. Omer. This is a tough one. Yeah, I'm glad that they recognize Happening. That, Same. that came back around again. There's a part of me that thinks Banshees, but then there's another part of me that thinks Decision to Leave. And then, to your point, Josh, there's another part of me that thinks happening. Yeah, and yeah. I also think there's another part of me that thinks on Omer. <laughs> yeah, Banshee's on, like, if you're just looking at this lineup, feels like the most obvious because it's the most recognition and name-worthy. But I'm 
possibly lean towards the decision to leave. I'm going to go with happening. Well, we're all over the place once again. <laughs> well, which one are you going with, Josh? St. Omer? I think I'm going to go with St. Omer, yeah. Okay. This is exciting. I love this. Best documentary feature. We have all that Breves, all the beauty and the bloodshed. I didn't see you there. The territory and what we leave behind. Um, I do think there is a case to be made for a couple of these, actually, but I'm going to go with all the beauty and the bloodshed. So am I. I think I'm actually going to go with all that breathes. I love that choice, and I would be very happy. I don't know where your mind's at in that regard, but <laughs> I would not be upset. Well, it just seems like there's a lot of people that love that movie. Yeah. I mean, personally, I would love it for it to be the territory because that is a film that I think has not gotten as much love as I had wanted it to. And it is still one of my favorite documentaries of the year. I mean, it's also a kind of win that could keep it in the conversation. Like you said, Josh, considering it's missed in a couple of documentary precursors. So, yeah, I would not be opposed to that either. And it's one of my favorite docs of the year, too. So I don't know. I just feel like all the beauty and the bloodshed still feels pretty big at this moment and still feels like our presumed front runner mm. but the doc race as we all know can take a lot of uh twists and turns throughout the season yeah and and certainly with all the beauty and the bloodshed i think it would play well particularly to a new york crowd considering the subject matter of that movie so for sure but i don't i don't know all the beauty of the bloodshed is also a movie that i just don't know how well it will be received by the documentary branch at the end of the day okay Best feature, After Sun, The Cathedral, Dos Estaciones, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and Tar. I mean, the conventional wisdom is to say everything everywhere, right? I mean, you would think that, but I actually think this is between After Sun and Tar. Mm. Yeah, my, my first actual kind of gut reaction was to put After Sun at number one. The thing with the Gothams, though, is for all their interesting nomination choices, they don't Typically, unless I'm misremembering, go for things that are too outside of the general um, consensus in terms of it, it depends. Like yeah. some years they are real adventurous and then other years. Yeah, they just give everything to one movie everything to Lost Daughter or a Marriage Story. Right. Yeah. I'm going to go with Tar. I could see it, too. I mean, God help me. Nothing would make me happier than everything everywhere all once. But <laughs> yeah, I feel like After Sun, Everything Everywhere and Tar are really the only ones in contention. Mm hmm. What are you going with here, Cody? I ugh, I was everything everywhere until about seven seconds ago, and now it's just back to tar. So. so here's my other thought process here. I, I think as of today, it's kind of fair to say that everything everywhere all at once will do better at the Spirit Awards. Oh, yeah. So this feels like the logical place to get the ball rolling with tar, unless if they want to get the ball rolling with everything everywhere all at once, you know? But Right, that's the thing is like, Tar really is the Cape Blanchett show right now in terms of predictions with, you know, some lower tier best picture predictions and screenplay. But Everything Everywhere really has that mainstream appeal that it, it feels pretty locked in for that kind of stuff as much as anything can be locked in this early. So if they want to make a splash at this point in the race, I guess picking Tar would be that. But Everything Everywhere really just has mass appeal that could just lead to victory. But this is not uh, voted on by the masses at the end of the day. Right, right. Which is why, I, like I said, which is why I'm thinking it's either After Sun or Tar and not Everything Everywhere at this at this particular group, at least. Yeah. And that's always the thing to remember is that this is a very small group that is not connected to the industry voters. Like it gives a spotlight to these movies, but 
whoever wins or loses, like just take the results with a grain of salt. Right. It's just a way to build buzz and momentum, which is why I'm actually considering moving over to After Sun because we've been discussing over the last like two weeks or so how this movie kind of needs critical support to be a best picture player. And maybe that perception kicks off here. Yeah. I mean, it really does have so much critical support just right now, but it needs to manifest in the actual nominations and wins during the precursor phase. And I I don't think these movies are very similar, like just in terms of the actual storytelling, but it does remind me a lot of come on, come on last year, which was a movie that every critic who saw it just seemed to love it and then it just didn't show up anywhere so it's like maybe they are learning that lesson like we need to actually show up for these movies that are kind of small but have a really big passion for all right we'll see what happens it could go any number of different ways right now and i'm very excited i'm excited to see where things kick off yeah it's really like the the start of the precursors and when we start to get answers to some of this stuff All right, let's take a look at a trailer here for Elemental, which is going to be the new Pixar film coming out next year on June 16th, 2023. It's a teaser that we received for this. Let's take a look and give some thoughts. Sorry. I'm Wade. I'm Ember. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Remember when we used to be excited about a Pixar movie? I mean, I'm still excited, but I also... I recognize the output hasn't been that consistent over the last couple of years. I mean, this kind of just looks like the type of thing that we've been getting from them, which we used to be, like, to Josh's point, so excited for these original concepts, but now it just kind of feels like, okay, what are we going to give... What are we going to anthropomorphize now? I mean, it's... (laughs) <laughs> truly it, it really does feel like the the meme joke come to life where they list all of these inanimate objects and it's like the uh the thing for pixar is just give them feelings and now all right, right now we're on the elements got feelings it's like okay i mean i'm sure it'll be fine but it does seem like you could think of this premise just blindly picking things out of a hat for pixar to do and that is not particularly exciting to me did you see who's directing it uh remind me Paul Schrader. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it's Peter Sohn, the director of The Good Dinosaur. Okay. I mean, okay. like, I did not hate The Good Dinosaur like some other people did, but it definitely was lesser Pixar. Yeah. I had so many thoughts while watching this, but then all of a sudden I kind of quickly realized that I didn't really care as much, mostly due to what <laughs> you're saying, Josh, because no, it's true because once it's you like, distill it down to there's like a formula that seems to be getting followed now by the team over at Pixar. I don't know. To me, it just doesn't seem as interesting as it once was. Like I can, I can almost chart exactly how I think this movie's going to play out. Right. And like the metropolitan setting, like it just kind of feels like Zootopia. So there's just, mm-hmm. a, it's nothing really surprising here, which is a, a bummer. I mean, sometimes there is a Pixar film that comes around that does feel still, new and groundbreaking and is trying some very interesting things. I mean, I I think in a lot of ways, like turning red uh, has resonated for a multitude of different reasons, even if on the surface initially, you know, we kind of looked at it and thought, oh, this doesn't look like it's going to be necessarily great, uh, but it has some really tremendous staying power due to its storytelling. Soul 
on the surface. And then, of course, when we saw it, it was like, wow, this does feel like a very original idea. But then when we saw like the execution of it with like the body swapping with the cat and everything, it kind of turns the people off. I don't know. I think it just at this point, it's kind of like Marvel fatigue where it, it it peaked. There was a high point for Pixar in like that late 2000, like, yeah, mid to late 2000s, early 2010s era. And ever since then, it's like we're, we're kind of in on it now. Like we know what to expect. And it's really, really tough to give us something that's going to measure up to those movies and blow us away. I mean, Jesus Christ, Wally got a Criterion 4K release recently. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Well, this recently yeah. just got too, so it was very nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah, but I, I'm like I'm so just not interested really in the movie. And to, and to be fair, I don't think Turning Red had great marketing either, and that actually ended up being really good. So there is still room for this movie to be really good itself. I mean, it's still Pixar. They have a lot of great talented people working there, but just from this initial viewing of this footage, that does not lead me to believe that we're getting anything innovative with the story here. All right. Well, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, it is a teaser. So maybe when they reveal a full trailer and we see a little bit more of the story, maybe, you know, we'll have a different idea of this, but for now, yeah, I was a little underwhelmed, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, when I'm looking at just the character names right here, and they're Wade Ripple and Ember, like, I, was, I don't know about this. <laughs> yeah, when she said Ember, I was like, come on, guys, back to the drawing board. Yeah. <laughs> All righty, let's head on over now to the polls. Let's see what the MVP film community voted for for last week, where we asked everyone, because of the Thanksgiving holiday, I knew screeners were going to go out. I knew people had some time to catch up with some films, both in the theater and at home. So I wanted to get a bit of a temperature check on what are the 10 films that you think are going to be nominated for Best Picture. And so what I want to do is this. I would like to read the results first, and then I would like to compare those with what we currently have predicted at this time. Sounds good? Yeah, sounds good. Okay. So at number 10... The MVP film community voted for She Said. Okay. Number nine, Avatar, The Way of Water. I mean, sight unseen. I mean, even, even if it gets seen, I, I struggle to see how Avatar is going to blow people away so much that it would ever, like, rise higher than number eight on, on a list. Right. Yeah. I mean, it will have to be... I, I, I hate to say this because we say this with every James Cameron movie. Who knows if it's going to, you know, top the last one, but it will have to be like an Avatar-level sensation. And I think it's going to do fine at the box office, all things considered. Yeah, I think it'll be pretty good. <laughs> but it's the critical reception that worries me a little bit more. Yeah, and just sequels have a hard time because it's a very high bar to clear. And that first Avatar surprised a lot of people. And I think that is one thing that really helped it. We don't have the surprise factor necessarily this time around. Number eight is The Whale. Yeah. I mean, especially if you think Brendan Fraser's winning Best Actor, that movie has to be in your Best Picture lineup. Which is why it's not in mine. <laughs> Number seven it's, is Babylon. Kind of lower now, I think, after the reactions came out, but it's still a contender. Yeah, yep, I, I agree. I think it'll have enough below the line support that it will still get a Best Picture nomination in the end. Yeah. Number six, Top Gun Maverick. Mm-hmm. Who would have thought back in May that we would be talking about Top Gun Maverick being almost a sure thing for a Best Picture nomination? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very wild. Number five is Tar. 
Yeah, I, I, I can see it. For that, I guess, but yeah. Number four, Women Talking. Mm-hmm. Three, The Banshees of Inishirin. Number two, Everything Everywhere All at Once. And number one, The Fablemans. I feel like everybody has that top four. I have the exact same top four in the same order. <laughs> I, yeah. I really believe those are the top four that can win. Uh, there's literally, I mean, I've heard some people make an argument for Top Gun Maverick, but I really don't think there's anything other than those four that, at least at this stage right now, in terms of a path to win, those are, it, it's going to be one of those four, I think. Yeah, Top Gun yeah. Maverick is just not comparable to any Best Picture winner we've had in I don't even know how long. Whereas all four of those top four, there's a there's something you can compare it to in the past decade or so. So the runners up, which I normally don't announce here, but I thought I would just throw this out there just to illustrate the other players that are in play here. Uh, Pinocchio and Elvis. Yeah. Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, by the way, not Robert Zemeckis' Pinocchio. Oh, <laughs> you don't clarify. think? You don't think that's getting no. in? Hey. I think that was a safe assumption. <laughs> um, yeah, I was surprised Elvis wasn't in the top 10 of this poll, considering the way that Twitter works. And I feel like the buzz is maybe not rising, but has been steady. I mean, I moved it back into my top 10 this past week. Yeah, I did too. And to be honest with you, I'm even toying with Austin Butler moving into my number one for best actor. I mean, it's kind of like what you said before, Josh. If you're going to do that, you got to predict it to get a Best Picture nomination. Yeah, which I it is in. I think I am have recently moved it into my Best Picture predictions. And I was also just looking at what it could do below the line and what it can win below the line. And I was just making those calculations. It's like there, it could win costume. It could win production design. It could win makeup. And if it's doing that with that potential, that's a good path for Austin Butler as well, who's also playing a real character, which we exactly. know they love to do to award at the Oscars. Yeah, I mean, you make a very good point here. I think it's definitely possible. I still have him at number three behind Brendan Fraser and Colin Farrell. But in terms of where the season could shift, it makes sense, especially if he wins Globe, SAG. I mean, I think he needs to win SAG. I think he could. He could. The thing is, though, he is quite young. He would probably be the first male. He'd almost definitely be the first male winner born in the 90s, I have to imagine. He um, would be young, but I feel yeah. like when you're playing a real person, that kind of goes out the window. Sure. I mean, but then again, tell that to Taron Egerton playing Elton John. So. Yeah, I th- I think Bohemian Rhapsody was his bigger problem, though. They just yeah. sort of felt like we had already That's done true. that. All right. For this week's poll, for the release of White Noise, which is playing in theaters and will be coming to Netflix later on in December, we are asking everyone, which is your favorite Adam Driver performance? Uh, A really, really talented actor over the last couple of years. Some really memorable work, all things considered. I mean, I am pretty partial towards Marriage Story. I think he's excellent in that movie. But if I had to highlight something else... You know, on the rewatch, the first time I saw this, I didn't really feel this way. But on a rewatch, he's really great in Patterson. I was yeah, going to say Patterson, too. Yeah. Adam Driver is an actor who I've been following for a long time, you know, ever since he was on Girls. And I've sometimes struggled with him. I find him to be a very um, specific actor with specific tricks. And those tricks don't always appeal to me. <laughs> um, so I think that's why Patterson is probably my favorite of his, because it's so unlike his other performances it's very grounded it's not as mannered or affected and i really think it's something special 
Josh, anything else? Uh, I do also really like him in Black Klansman. I think that's a really good performance, too. Uh, I think I would also shout out Logan Lucky. Oh, he's so great in Logan Lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's such a fun movie in general, but I do think he is really fun in that film, too. I'm also going to say something that might sound a little controversial, maybe. I think he gives the best performance in all of the Star Wars movies in The Last Jedi. Yeah, of I wouldn't his argue with Star that. Wars movies, that's his best one, pretty yeah. easily. It's everybody's best one. (laughs) (laughs) He was absolutely wild in The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Never saw it. (laughs) In a net as well. But that was also just such a bonkers movie. Yeah, I like to just pretend that The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, it still doesn't exist. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, White Noise, I I think I'm the only one that's seen it here so far. It it is another very off-kilter performance from him. A character that has a lot of quirks. But I think it just once again goes just goes to show you like the range that he has and what he's able to accomplish. I'm excited for you all to check it out. Yeah, I I will hopefully be seeing it soon. All right, so you can vote up to three performances here. So head on over to the polls page, nextbestpicture.com. Cast a vote there for your favorite Adam Driver performance, and we will announce it on next week's show. Okay, and then next up here. Questions from the fans. Let's see what the MVP film community had to ask us for this week's show. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Danny Jarabek, if Best poster design was an Oscar category. What would you nominate this year? Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, you everything know, Everywhere. Yeah. Pretty spectacular poster. Yeah. Yeah. The Everything Everywhere poster is really great. That one's good. I did like the Fableman's poster. You did? Okay. Well, yeah. I thought it was fine. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I, mean, I, I, I didn't mean to sound like so. <laughs> I just wasn't like that enamored with it, but that's okay. Well, I mean, to be honest with you, I don't really pay attention to posters all that much anymore. And I feel like for the most part, poster design has gone in the tubes. So yeah, it's kind of not great options every year. I, I find for great poster design. I remember the Nope teaser poster being pretty spectacular. Yeah. So evocative and mysterious. You know, it's it just really got buzz going already. I really like the Tar poster, which is a black background, Kate Blanchett with her arms held out, and it just says Tar across it. Like, just the angle, the power position that she has on it. I thought that was really effective. Yeah, I like that one a lot, too. But I agree with what you're saying, Josh. Uh, poster creation has definitely dwindled. The last couple of years, you really got to like find these like custom posters to find something really good nowadays. Oh, yeah. Fan made posters. They just are running circles around what the studios are actually putting out. You know what? I think I just like simplicity behind my posters because another one that's coming to mind now is the EO with the donkey just poking his head out from the side with the red background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good. I mean, well, we can't forget the actual winner that should be running with this category, and that's, of course, the whale. Yeah. 
Oh, Jesus. Oh, man. What what a poster <laughs> for the way. Oh, my God. Connor Lorenz, what nominations would Top Gun Maverick have to get on Oscar nomination morning to be a contender to win Best Picture? To win Best Picture. I will literally not consider Top Gun Maverick to win Best Picture unless if I see nominations for director, actor, and adapted screenplay, probably. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Like, it would have to drastically overperform for me to consider it to win. I'm the same. Like, I love that movie, obviously, but it would, like you said, have to really overperform with nominations for picture, director, and adapted screenplay. I That is the only way I could see that contending for a win. And even then, it would still be, I think, very difficult. Matthew Anderson, despite the Fableman's being a possible frontrunner to win Best Picture, do you all think it's possible for it to miss certain categories like supporting actor or editing? What would it take for you to believe that Williams could beat Blanchett or Deadweiler, an actress? Okay, so kind of a two-part question here. I am of the belief that Fableman's is going to overperform like Power of the Dog last year in nominations. Yeah, it could miss certain things here or there, but... That would really surprise me just considering who worked on this movie and how popular they are in their individual branches and how popular the movie is just overall as a contender. So it would kind of surprise me if it did miss some stuff, but it's not impossible. Mm -hmm. I remember down to the wire last year, people were really doubting West Side Story at the last minute, which (laughs) I never was. And then look at it, you know, got picture director and five other nominations pretty easily. So I think unless it's a huge like flopper in some degree, this is going to pretty easily get four or five nominations at least. Uh, what would, and so for the Williams thing, uh, Josh, we've said this before, Cody, I, I don't know if you feel a similar way here, but I mean, I think Michelle Williams, the only way she wins best actress is, is if the film also wins best picture. Sure. And even then I'm not sure. I mean, it's just, you know, the th- it's not a, a new thought to say she would be winning supporting actress if she was in that category still. But Best Actress is just so crowded, and I I have her in fourth currently. I moved her to number one. Oh, wow. But it is contingent on the movie winning Best Picture, and I just also feel like Best Actress right now just seems like there are a lot of different camps, and I could see a scenario Mm -hmm. in which it's all very split up, and my rule of thumb is always when that happens, go with the movie that's in the stronger position to win Best Picture. So that's why I'm going with Williams right now. I mean, we could see a scenario where it does – coalesce around one person and then yeah i'll switch over but i can i can see it being a divided field and i'm going with that assumption right now connor olin uh if the oscars had a category for best stunts which films from this year would be in contention well top gun well top gun (laughs) yeah Yeah, um i would also say everything everywhere all at once yep definitely the batman Mm -hmm. this is also where i could see rrr showing up Oh, cool. Oh, should. Yeah. Love that. Woman King is another one. Yeah. I would actually say that would probably be the five. Sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm okay with it. Adam Clay, though it seems pretty obvious that Pinocchio is winning Best Animated Feature at this point, what else do you think it is going to get nominated for as of right now? Um, I'm thinking this could be pretty similar to Encanto last year, where it could get into definitely at least one, but possibly both music categories. Yeah, I think visual effects is also a possibility. Mm-hmm. So I did just update my predictions recently for this. Um, I have it in production design and score. You have a lot of faith in that production design nomination happening. <laughs> oh, I also have it in production design, actually, looking at my Really? You yep. really think they're going to nominate an animated movie for production design? I think it'd be pretty cool. 
I, I don't deny that it'll be cool. <laughs> so the problem I have is that like I, I, I have Babylon, Elvis, the Fablemans and Avatar The Way of Water. Yep, me too. So what is the fifth film after that? Uh, I have Bardo, which I would love. I love the production design in that movie, but that just does not seem like an obvious choice for that. I mean, it, that feels like such an outside pick. That seems more obvious than picking an animated movie. An animated movie from a guy whose design work typically gets recognized in all of his movies. Still an animated movie. And I just do not trust the branch to make the jump to look at production design from animated movies as like, quote unquote, real. And this is not me endorsing that because, yes, it should be in contention. I've had animated movies win my own personal production design awards. But I just think that there is still a bias of not being like full size sets for that movie. I, I just really feel like that's going to be an uphill battle for it. Prediction does not equal endorsement. People remember that. Yes. Polls for life asks, which film do you think is more likely to receive double nominations in the supporting actor category? The Banshees of Inishirin or the Fablemans? Love the podcast, by the way. Mm. Oh, thank you for that. I mean, right now I'm betting on Banshees, but yeah, it could easily be the Fablemans. Right now I have the Fablemans, but Barry Keoghan's my number six. So it's yes. this close for either one of them. I am in the same boat, Cody. I have him at number six, and I could see it going either way, but I am leaning towards, like I said, an, a Fablemans overperformance at the moment. However, I need to see Judd Hirsch do well in the precursors. I think Paul Dano is getting in, but that's mostly because it just feels like the right time with the Batman also releasing this year. He has not been nominated yet. It just it just feels right. That's interesting because and I haven't seen the movie yet, but I feel like Judd Hirsch. I've heard more buzz and excitement for. So here's the funny thing about the Judd Hirsch uh, comment. And Josh, I think you said you had a similar reaction to this. It was overhyped. Interesting. In my opinion, it was. But I, I, I also mentioned this on our podcast review is that sometimes when we have a situation of two people in these categories, like especially the supporting categories, if it's between somebody who could get their first nomination or maybe someone who already has been nominated and won, but is just a familiar veteran, they tend to go with the veteran. Although... I will counteract that and say Mark Wahlberg over Jack Nicholson for The Departed. <laughs> I mean, true, but The Departed also just had a very messy acting campaign because they threw yes, DiCaprio into supporting, too. It was they had no idea what they were doing with that one. James Scott, what are your thoughts on the discourse surrounding the new DreamWorks logo? Hate it. Not a fan. Don't like it. Yeah, but the amount of DreamWorks animated movies I see doesn't really impact me all that much. So, right. yeah, I, I wasn't a fan of the design, but it was also like I will probably never see this really in action that much. <laughs> so it's OK. Ryan Rabideau, I think a lot of people are underestimating James Cameron and the director race this year. What are your thoughts? I think, again, that movie just has a very high bar to clear. And I just don't think the director's branch are really going to go for him again for this movie. Right, because the first time, as you were saying earlier, it was new. It was a novelty. It was a cultural phenomenon. Now it's like, okay, par of a course. We expect it. I think we'll have to see, first of all, obviously how the movie is received in general and also what they do with his campaign because they could easily turn into like, he's developing new ways of doing things. He's you know, It took him this long. It's a passion project, all of which are narratives which have worked in the past, but, you know, to your point, it is a sequel. So we'll just have to wait and see. 
Betty Dawson, let's say theoretically the U.S. had to choose only one film to represent them as every other country has had to do each year in the international category. What do you think America would choose this year for a foreign awards body? I mean, hmm. like my first thought is the Fablemans, but that was um, mine, too. I also sort of feel like if this were to happen, probably the process would be sort of the way that Israel does it, which Israel always the movie that they end up selecting is whatever wins like their own best picture prize at their local award ceremony. So it feels like whatever would win best picture at the Oscars is the one that you would just send out to represent for uh, other countries. I could see women talking being the one chosen because it's, you know, severely American. It is, it deals with a lot of themes that are, you know, American struggles in particular. I could see it. That really feels like something that might, you know, signal, Signal something good about um, our choices artistically as a country. I agree, Cody. I also wonder, though, on the flip side of that, if they didn't go like because I think I think we're looking at it from the standpoint of, oh, what are the types of films that other countries usually select for international feature? Yeah. But there's like a part of me that thinks that American hubris and ego would probably be so large that we would have the nerve to put forward Top Gun Maverick. (laughs) <laughs> i mean it was the biggest international hit exactly but i mean it's so weird because you don't really see other countries doing that with us otherwise rrr would be getting in scott kernan every year we usually get at least one sag nomination that throws everyone off kate blanchett for nightmare alley lupita nyong'o for us etc who do you think stands the most likely chance of being the surprising nomination this year yeah there's always one mm-hmm. um Depending on how she does in the precursors, I could see Janelle Monet getting in there. And if she hasn't gotten thus far much recognition, that being kind of a surprise. Yeah, kind of like somebody that's like, oh, we thought she was in early on. The precursors didn't go for her as much. People start to write her off and then she comes back. Yeah, I I could see that. Um, or possibly something like um, something somebody from The Woman King. You mean like Viola Davis or... Or Lashana Lynch or Tusum Mbude, like mm-hmm. anybody like that who's not. Yeah, from the Davis, supporting cast, I, think has I a pretty good chance. Yeah. Hmm. This is a good question. I Okay, wait, wait, I got, I got one. I, oh, I, yeah, you got I, one? So, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if this would be considered a surprise at this point, but it just seems to make sense. And I could also see this being the only place where he does show up. Tom Cruise. Yeah, <laughs> that does make a lot of sense. Yeah, I just like I don't see a world in which you watch that film and go, yes, this is one of the top five best male lead performances of the year, even in a kind of shallow year like this. That's why I think with like the precursors and then when we get to other things like I have a feeling the gl- the Globes will not go for him. Critics choice might not either. But then I could see a world where SAG does. Um, oh, actually, I think Critics' Choice might. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was gonna say actually, I just had another thought. Um, Adam Sandler for Hustle. That would that would make sense because I actually think Tom Cruise will show up at Critics' Choice because he's in so many people's Oscar predictions right now. As, as it is, I think they will hedge their bets on that. All hail King Shark. Is there a release problem in Hollywood? Uh, multiple films not making money has made a lot of headlines. So how do you expect movies to make money if they don't open everywhere? Okay, so I see, I I get what they're saying here, like in regards to platform release strategy, going wide, 600 theaters versus 2,000 versus 3,000, 4,000, et cetera, et cetera. Like, what is the strategy here? Um, Some films, they they need to build word of mouth 
And that's why you have the platform release strategy where you open it up in a few small markets, a few few theaters. Usually you get a pretty good per theater average and then you slowly start to expand. That's what Fablemans is doing right now. And yet it's still like not really doing well. But then on the flip side, you have something like she said, which went wide right away and didn't do a platform release. And that also didn't do well. It is a very, very difficult time for box office for any kind of quote unquote prestige award movies. I mean, unless if you're a blockbuster or a, a, a horror film, because the menu was marketed like as a horror movie and it did relatively well, but it's tough. It, it's a really, really tough uh, world out there right now for these types of movies. I do think marketing has such a big hand in it. I mean, this is totally anecdotal, but I was hosting a lot of you know my in-laws and my extended family for Thanksgiving and we were watching the parade in a few trailers for the Fablemans came on and this room full of um, people who live in a rural area didn't know what it was, which is kind of insane for a Steven Spielberg movie. And I know West Side Story had a similar issue last year, box office wise, but I really just think there's something off with the marketing. I don't know if people don't know how to market certain movies or the the, the, the word is just not getting out there, but I, I think that's got to be a big part of it. I think that's a part of it. I think also... The audience that primarily was going out to see these movies just have not really come back to the theater. And I think now there's even a bigger assumption that if you see something that is sort of in that prestige drama kind of a film uh, in that genre, I think there's a lot of people that just feel like, well, I'll just wait a month or so and it'll probably be on demand at that point. Mm -hmm. I, I just think that is now being become the expectation with so many of these movies and i understand that was necessary because of the pandemic but i do think that has now created this expectation yeah that these movies there's not a real urgency to see them in a theater because just wait a month or so and you can just stream them at home right the movies that do well are kind of almost like incentivized to see in theaters, whether it's because it's a big movie you want to see on the big screen, or it's uh, a movie that's predicated on twists or plot revelations that might get spoiled online, which is both, you know, the Marvel movies and also things like horror movies or Glass Onion, which is doing quite well. And I think those movies, people go, well, I have seen theaters before, either the internet spoils it or because I want to see it on the big screen. And something like The Fablemans is just not... People just don't have that reaction to it, unfortunately, anymore. All right. Well, uh, let's end on a positive note here. Uh, Josh Wilbur underscore asks, what's everyone's favorite trailer this year? Ooh, favorite trailer. I think about that one. I really enjoyed the Fablemans trailer. I did like that one. Yeah. Yeah. Like I saw it after the movie came out, but I but I still really, really liked it quite a bit. I thought the trailer for Everything Everywhere All at Once was pretty fantastic. Um, really sells you on the idea of the movie in a quite a short amount of time while still, you know, leaving something up that you would need to see the movie to figure out. So I think that was I did a really spectacular job selling the concept of the movie. The trailer for Bones and All also was really good. Uh, the first one that they released. Mm hmm. I'll tell you what didn't have a good trailer. Smile had an awful trailer, and I'm kind of shocked at how good the movie was comparison-wise, which maybe is maybe helped it out because I went in with low expectations like a lot of other people did. Yeah. Yeah. I did really like the trailer to The Batman. Which one? <laughs> well, the, the one that everybody knows with the, um, the song in it that's in the movie. Yeah, I did like that a lot. You're right. That was a good one. 
I'm not even I'm not in love with the movie like other people are, but that that trailer did a really good job. Uh, I'm obligated to say Triangle of Sadness. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that first Black Panther trailer was also really good. The first Black Panther trailer was incredible. Yeah, that definitely that might be the best trailer that Marvel's ever put out, period. Yeah, I think I would say so. Yeah. You know what? That's probably like my answer overall, I think. Yeah, because that trailer did a lot to get me on board of being excited for that movie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, one more. Um, I got to give a shout out to Nope, especially for the title crawl of the film by Jordan Peele. Yeah, that was so great. Really, really well executed. Yeah, that was a good one, too. All right. Well, that'll do it here for this week's episode. Cody Derricks, tell everyone that's listening right now where they can find you on the internet. You can find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, uh, Instagram, I guess Hive. I guess we have to promote that now. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm at CodyMonster91. And Josh Parham. Uh, yeah, you can also find me on Twitter at JRParham. And you can find me in Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to episode 321 of the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. And you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.